Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We've got one coming up that we're particularly excited for you to hear. It's our first full-length movie commentary track for Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Yes, this is an actual track you can play along as you watch the film, and it's coming soon. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson here with Scott Tobias. Uh, Keith and Genevieve are both out this week. I think I last saw them crawling towards a mysterious portal leading out of a recording studio. So who knows whose reality they're in now. But we're bringing in a ringer to take their place. Film spotting family podcast veteran Matt Singer, our former compatriot at The Dissolve, now editor and critic for Screen Crush and late of film spotting SVU. Matt, it's so exciting to see you again. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I should say, though, I am actually Keith inside Matt's body. Uh, oh, no. I'm Keith. Uh, it's me, Keith. That's going to be uh, really I'm operating confusing. Matt for the next 15 minutes, and then he'll take over again, and I will be dumped out somewhere by the New Jersey Turnpike. Will we be able to tell the difference when you change back? Uh, I don't do as good a Jimmy Stewart impressions as Matt, the real Matt does, so... <laughs> Mm. I, you know, if you weren't going to come to tonight's show, I wish you hadn't come to tonight's show instead of secretly coming to tonight's show. But at least you blew your cover. That's something. Yes. Well, let's hop into it. American movie theaters are starting to open up again, which has launched a raging debate over the safety of spending time in enclosed places with crowds of strangers. For now, we're staying safe and sticking with quarantainment, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, and streaming services. For our next two episodes, we'll be looking at two films that come from the same sensibility. Both of them are currently available on Netflix, and both show an array of... Abrupt, predictable, comedic interruption. Oh, boy. Uh, here we go. Um, okay. What? Unlikely statement delivered by a preposterous character <laughs> with a silly voice. That's... Uh, okay, this is where we normally do some ridiculous skit in some way related to the movies we just watched, but I don't Further really- Further sudden interruption, escalation of comedic bit, even more unlikely frivolity. Enthusiastic approval. Okay, I think I get what's going on here. We're looking at a couple of movies with significant self-referential elements, so you guys are doing some kind of tiresome meta script gag rather than the usual script gag? Scolding reminder that you actually wrote the script. Gentle offloading of blame. Refusal to let go of the gag. Elaborate reference to Next Picture Show in-jokes. Winking aside at the audience. Even more winking aside to Matt. <laughs> Exchange of exclusionary camaraderie. Pop culture reference. Reference to the same pop culture artifact filtered through a different pop culture artifact in an ironic way. Okay. Okay, we get it. Um... Uh, capitulation to the joke, uh, attempt to get things back on track, invitation for someone to explain this week's pairing. Guys, I, I think the bit's over, right? We can move on now? Oh crap, where did the walls go? Why is this room suddenly huge? Where's that bright light coming from? Where's my script for the rest of the show? Is that snow or is the world coming apart into tiny pieces? Where did my hands go? Why can't I remember my own name? What even is identity? 
Am I myself or am I the script I wrote for this piece? Did I ever stop writing the script for this piece? What is art and who is the artist? Is there any meaning to being or is being itself the meaning of being? Huh, well, uh, I think she just disappeared to her own navel. Weird how often that happens. Matt, you want to tell the audience what two movies we're talking about this week? Sure. Back in 1999, when Being John Malkovich hit theaters, director Spike Jones was known primarily as a music video director. And if people knew about writer Charlie Kaufman at all, they knew him from his TV scripts for playful shows like Chris Elliott's Get a Life and the sketch comedy series The Edge and The Dana Carvey Show. But as their mutual film debut, Being John Malkovich became a memorable calling card, a movie that weaponized John Malkovich's personality and fame, but also delved into such elaborate, unpredictable, unashamed weirdness that viewers who caught it were guaranteed to remember it. Kaufman went on to write the films Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, an adaptation, and to direct two of his own films, the meta-artistic movie Synecdoche, New York, and the stop-motion animated film Anomalisa. Now he's back with his third directorial project, Netflix's I'm Thinking of Ending Things, yet another film in a two-decade run of dizzying audiences by playing around with identity and surrealism. We'll be looking at Kaufman's first film and his latest one together on this latest film pairing. Thanks, Matt. Expected coded a meta-comedy bit? Emphasized for catharsis? Sign off. Fade to sound cues. My name is Craig Schwartz, and I have an interview with Dr. Lester. Please have a seat, Mr. Juarez. My name is Schwartz. My name is Schwartz. Which of these two letters comes first, this one or this one? The symbol on the left is not a letter, sir. Damn, you're good. Do you know that I don't even know your name or where you work? And 50 other lines to get into a girl's pants. <laughs> so, honey, you thought any more about us having a baby? I think that maybe we should just wait and see if this job thing pays off. There's a tiny door in my office, Maxine, and it takes you inside John Malkovich. There's no such thing as a hole into somebody's brain. Yes, there is. You see the world through John Malkovich's eyes? Yes! And then after about 15 minutes... And that's not me! I didn't say that! You're spin out into a ditch on the side of the New Jersey turnpike. It was amazing. Where the hell are we? We're Malkovich's subconscious. Do you think that it's kind of weird that John Malkovich has a portal? I mean, do you think that it might have some sort of significance? What is going on? Huh? I discovered that portal. It's my head! 1999's Being John Malkovich is one of those films where it's hard to see as groundbreaking unless you were there for it back in the day. Not to get all, back in my day, we walked to school up hills both ways in the snow on our younger listeners, but social media had barely been conceived of back in 1999, and movie stars often took themselves pretty seriously. The kinds of meta-jokes and viral gags and image games that are so common for stars today just weren't a thing back then. Generally, the closest we got to seeing a movie star puncture their own self-image was in a Saturday Night Live host gig or a stiff Oscar bit, which will help explain why both of those things were more popular with the mainstream back then than they are today. The kind of self-effacing, in-on-the-joke role John Malkovich takes in being John Malkovich wasn't unheard of, but it was fairly rare. And like so many of our other favorite movies, it almost didn't happen. Screenwriter Charlie Kaufman says he never really considered another actor for the title role in the movie, but he also never really thought he'd get Malkovich to read the script, let alone actually do it. He and Jones and Malkovich have all talked in interviews about how the spec script came to Malkovich in part because his agent found it hilariously presumptuous, and Malkovich himself thought it was a brilliant script but he wanted it to be being Tom Cruise instead. 
Malkovich wanted to produce the movie, but not star in it. And over the course of an awful lot of interviews about it since, I have yet to find one where he explains why he finally relented. His objections to the film are obvious. In the movie, he plays himself as a bit of a vain fool, easily manipulated by a pretty and sexually confident woman, and eventually swallowed up by a lot of other people. The script requires him to be ridiculous, gullible, and impotent, not just as a character, but literally as himself. Or, well, sort of literally. Malkovich enters the story when scruffy-haired sad sack wannabe puppeteer Craig, played by John Cusack, discovers a secret portal behind the filing cabinets at his oddball workplace, situated on a secret half-floor sandwiched between the 7th and 8th floors of an office building. Entering the portal, he finds it leads to Malkovich's mind, where he spends 15 minutes experiencing the actor's point of view before being bodily dumped by the side of the road on the Jersey Turnpike. He immediately tries to use the portal to impress his office-building crush, Maxine, played by Catherine Keener, but she just sees it as a business opportunity, and she starts selling tickets to the Malkovich experience at $200 a pop, at least until Craig's wife Lottie, played in a ridiculously frowsy wig by Cameron Diaz, also gets in on the action and discovers that she loves being Malkovich. And Maxine wants to have sex with Lottie, but only when she's Malkovich. And Craig similarly wants Maxine, which leads to some tangled and regrettable action, particularly when Malkovich himself finds out about the portal. All of this is unpredictable and bizarre. Some of the big plot elements, like the speed at which everyone falls for everyone else and the casual needle drop about what the portal's actually for, land so abruptly that they feel like comedy. But most of the action is still played pretty straight and straight-faced, as if part of the human condition is maybe having a muddy tunnel people can crawl through to get into your head. Kaufman is already showing hints at the elements that have become career-long obsessions in his movies. The depressed and desperate man who thinks his needs trump everyone else's. The question about what art means and where it comes from. The imagery of self-examination and self-doubt. The wry and kind of disdainful humor and cynicism about fame. But here, they feel lighter than they usually do, because the stakes are fairly low. At least for most of us, who get to laugh at everyone's larger-than-life foibles and the sheer unpredictability of it all. But for Malkovich, at least, the stakes back in 1999 seemed pretty high. He was literally risking his name on a project that at best seemed to lampoon him, and at worst had a chance to permanently associate his name with what might seem like a ridiculous vanity project. He told Rolling Stone, quote, If you do a film where your name is not above the title, but in the title, then you may have some serious narcissistic tendencies which would require looking at. More famously and more widely quoted, Spike Jones told The Guardian in 2013 that Malkovich had said, quote, Either the movie's a bomb, and it's got not only my name above the title, but my name in the title, so I'm fucked that way, or it does well, and I'm just forever associated with this character. And so he may be. But we're all better off for it, maybe Malkovich included. Even 20 years later, even after endless self-skewering viral videos and extras episodes and celebrity stunts and gags, being John Malkovich still feels pretty daring. Malkovich may have actually helped usher in an era where this kind of thing is more common than it used to be, and honestly, it's a world we probably all want to live in. It's not exactly the world of getting to live eternally inside John Malkovich's head with a dozen of our best friends, but it's about as close as we're likely to come. You're not going crazy. You don't understand, man. It's like nothing yeah, I've yeah, ever felt. Yeah, yada, yada, yada. Were you stoned? Yes. Yes, sir. Jesus. Yes. Yes, I was stoned. But what the, that doesn't have anything to do with it. Charlie, someone was talking through my mouth. You were stoned. Case closed. End of story. Okay, guys. So how does being John Malkovich play for you today, especially given uh, 20 more years with most of these cast members? I mean, it plays 
real well <laughs> to me. I w- when I saw it in 1999, it was an extraordinarily memorable experience. You know, not only because it was this, the introduction to you know a major screenwriter and a major director, but because I just remember the actual experience. It is to this day the most rocking the film critic screening room has ever gotten in Chicago. Critics were absolutely roaring throughout the whole movie. I mean, this is back when when Ebert still had his his voice, and of course he had this big, huge, booming laugh in the in the back corner of the room, and it, it was just a film that that wowed everyone with its humor and its audacity and and it just kind of clicked in a big way so it was just a really memorable viewing experience and um seeing it now i don't feel like there's any part of it that doesn't play just as well as it did in in 99 and i feel like the people involved in it all came away with their reputations deepened and enhanced including malkovich and um and I think that it's themes about uh, longing and about you know identity and, and, and about the possibility of change, uh, about, about learning something new about yourself. I mean, all that is still exciting now, just as it was in 99. I had almost, uh, almost as glamorous a, a viewing experience, which I actually remember too, was not the Chicago Film Critics Screening Room. It was the Lowe's Freehold 6, which was my <laughs> childhood theater. If I remember correctly, this was the last movie I saw there before it closed down. They opened a better, newer theater nearby. And so it was a. this was like in the last days of the theater. It was a dollar theater. And um, for some reason, being John Malkovich was playing there. And I went with a couple of friends. And the theater, like the room itself was like run down. I remember I sat down next to a seat that had no back. And then the the image in the beginning of the movie until we went and complained was like bleeding off the top and bottom of the screen. And I don't know why, but that seems like a very fitting setting for this movie. There's something about like the kind of ramshackle. Uh, well, it's a, it was a, it's a seventh and a half floor of frames, yes, right? Yes, exactly. That really fits the kind of like we don't know what the heck we're doing kind of vibe of the movie. I still really enjoyed it seeing it again this week. I did feel in some ways like. I don't know that it belongs to a like a an earlier quirkier era of comedy. Some of the jokes to me did feel a little like I don't know what else to say other than quirky, but it did, you know, I didn't expect it to feel dated and I it felt a little bit that way to me. Maybe not even in a bad way, but it does feel like a movie that's a couple of decades old to me. Some <laughs> of the jokes I still thought were incredible. Um that my favorite one for sure is everything that has to do with the secretary or uh, <laughs> personal liaison in in that office who can't even just describing it makes me laugh that she mishears everything and has convinced the boss that he has a speech impediment yeah and everything about that joke is so like that could almost be you know like when you we talk about charlie kaufman having a background in sketch comedy that to me plays like an amazing sketch that was you know, that just somehow missed the cut, I guess. And one of the shows he worked on, I just think it's such a brilliant premise for a, for a sketch or an element of a movie. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those Charlie Kaufman things. That's like, it's just a piece of absurdism on the face of it. You know, it's, it's just kind of a, like a Saturday Night Live worthy running gag of nope, that's the joke. And we're just going to keep on doing it. Uh, Mary Kay Place is just is really funny about being both straight faced and contemptuous about it. And Orson Bean is so self-effacing. But then the more you think about it, the more you think, well, no, this is Charlie Kaufman, like expressing his own anxiety. Like here is 
a mature and capable man with a lot of knowledge at his hands that has allowed somebody else to completely define and undermine him. He he <laughs> lives true. in a space of just believing that he can't connect or communicate with anybody based on what one person thinks of him. And he cannot be reassured. Like that is a really smart portrayal of anxiety and depression. Yeah, uh, many to come for <laughs> Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> know, right. <laughs> like many in the film and then many, many more in future films. Uh, that, that is his mode. Um, and also kind of sets up that relationship, kind of sets up, you know, Orson Bean for later. I mean, he, he's kind of bewitched by his secretary. And of course, he, he is very randy and explicit about all of the things that he he's into and then of course and that and that kind of bleeds into the revelation later about what the purpose of the portal is and and uh you know this kind of like fountain of youth that's sort of awaiting him or something but um it all it's all it's all a rich tapestry um I mean, that's the thing that's the thing about this script it's just it feels like the type of script I mean, it took him a, a while just to get a film made. I mean, he was, you mentioned some of the sketch comedy shows he'd done, you know, and uh, none of which were like big, big hits, but some are kind of cult favorites. But when you bounce around for that long, you know, you just like, okay, I'm just going to give it this big shot. I'm going to take my one big swing. And being John Malkovich feels that, that like that big swing. It's kind of almost extraordinary to me that he had and, and has so much left in him because it feels so dense with ideas and comedy maybe sketch bits that he may have uh not been able to do on the david dan carvey show but he can fit into this thing i mean it's just it's really alive and very much a pure thing too i mean just to call it being john malkovich to really conceive it that way in such a specific way and then to get it made like it is it just it's a very pure film yeah there's some fun trivia out there about why it's being john malkovich and not being tom cruise or being any of the other actors it could have been but to some degree it really does just come down to Kaufman kind of fixating on a name that would sound good during the scene where everybody's just repeating his last name over and over. He huh? says the the other actors that he vaguely played around with, none of their names sounded as good in that scene. And wow. like using that as the reason for casting not just the sort of the putative star of your show, but like the anchor of the movie, you know, the fact that he's in the name, the fact that it's all kind of built around his fame and his identity and how people want to be him. <laughs> it's just a remarkable reason for choosing John Malkovich. He's so good in it too. Like that, I, that was, I, I have not seen this movie in such a long time. And that was one of the things that I guess it shouldn't surprise me because he is such a talented actor, but it's such a good performance. He's so completely unafraid to look terrible at times in this movie. Like, you know, he is a celebrity. And I'm sure that as he feared, this movie, you know, certainly made him much more well-known. And it's funny that the one of the sort of, I don't know if it's a dilemma, but the ex the existence of Malkovich as we experience it is people thinking they know what movies he's been in. And, and of course, they never remember <laughs> the right movie. Yeah. And if anything, this movie certainly cured him of that disease, because from this point on, everyone just said, oh, it's John Malkovich from the movie being John Malkovich. I'm sure that's the movie people mention now instead of he's not playing a jewel thief anymore. He's now he's the guy from being John Malkovich. But he's just so unafraid to look absolutely terrible in this movie. And I found that very admirable that he comes away looking as bad as all the other characters in this movie. You know, there's not a lot of. Uh, heroes in Charlie Kaufman's moral universe, much less being John Malkovich, but that he's kind of a sleazeball and, <laughs> and he's sort of drunk on what fame he does have. And uh, 
he mistreats people and he's obnoxious. And there's the, the amazing scene where he's ordering things out of the catalog that it's just, oh, incredible. Uh, almost, it almost feels like a, a weird kind of reverberation with Fight Club and all the sort of fixations in that movie about yeah, catalogs. Yeah. That's and, how you got things done back in the day, right? I know, right. It's right around that same time. It's people, you know, they were, that was a thing. People, catalogs. Young people watching it now must be mystified by the catalogs but uh yeah he's 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 fantastic in it yeah he's he's just he's so egoless i mean that the ridiculous scene where he as cusack's character craig is doing the dance of delusion (laughs) disillusion and despair Mm -hmm. and he's just like flailing wildly about in a uh you know with a blanket wrapped around his hips basically and there's so much focus on his face i guess we can't be a hundred percent sure that it's it's him i think there's at least one shot where i was like all right the backflip is not him like you you get sort of a glimpse of his midriff at that point that's like talented but he's not that talented all right whoever's doing that has uh, much more of a six-pack than john malkovich does but an awful lot of that is just straight up him physically throwing himself into that role in a very literal way there are so many specific qualities, though, that Malkovich has that make him right for the role. I mean, it's feel. I mean, it's not not just you know because that name sounds good in the, you know, the sequence where he is uh, goes into his own head. But you know, the, you know, the fact that he is one of those that guy character actors, so people know that he's an actor but can't remember any movie that he's been in. So you need that requirement. Um, I think there's a feeling with with John Malkovich that he's a serious actor in a very, with a capital S. That this film just lampoons to no end, but also exploits in a clever way too. I mean, you know, he—it's a film that is about being an artist as well, and who—who who is more of an artist than John Malkovich, or, and who considers himself in that way more than John Malkovich? Very few people, and so, so, so there's a lot of very specific qualities that Malkovich has that are um, played on for this film to the point where it's like, okay. Let me try to imagine somebody else in that role that would make it work, and and I guess maybe some maybe somebody could, but I don't know who would do it do it better than better than him, or who would do it in a way that wouldn't completely you know alter the feeling of the of the movie. Yeah, so the the movie does kind of present an interesting conflict about fame. Down the line, Craig uses Malkovich's fame to push across his own puppeteering agenda, which he didn't have an outlet for, uh, which which people weren't interested in. And it's almost played as a gag, like how easily he's able to become famous as a puppeteer because he's Malkovich, you know, because he has that name. Poof. But at the same time, the visions that we get of what it's like to be a famous man are so banal. Uh, sitting at home ordering washcloths out of catalogs and riding in taxi cabs with people saying things like, ah, I thought you were in that one film, but you're not. Who am I thinking of? You know, the strangers <laughs> that think it's your job to to tell them what movie they're thinking of. That kind of thing does, in fact, happen to famous people a lot. There's not a whole lot of glamour to movie stardom and being John Malkovich. Except for the part where he hangs out with Charlie Sheen, I guess. Which, boy, if you want to talk about a gag that plays differently today than it did back then, that's a big one. Right. They cast Charlie Sheen as like the voice of reason in John Malkovich's life. I think it still still kind of plays like it did for me then. I mean, obviously, Charlie Sheen took on a whole lot more personal baggage since, but it was absurd that it was Sheen. I mean, he'd be the last person you would expect to be John Malkovich's like pal. And so to see him show up in the movie in 99 was pretty damn funny. 
Yeah, that's a great surprise when he just kind of pops up on screen, too. I had totally forgotten he was in this as well. So I've read that Malkovich, it was actually his idea to have Charlie Sheen in that role. And he he alluded to the fact that there was some resistance to it that he kind of pushed through. And I, I would love to know what exactly was behind that. I've been trying to think, Scott, you were saying like, who else could play this part? This feels like the kind of like meme that becomes a Twitter thing one day. It's like, <laughs> if you were casting this movie today, like who would be the actor you would play? You know, who would you pick? And I... It's hard to decide. Like, he really is such a perfect figure for this movie in terms of all the reasons that you've already laid out. It's like, what would you do if he had said no? Like, I guess it just wouldn't have been made. I mean, for years, it wasn't. For years, he said no, and they said, nobody but you. And uh, I would still love to know why he buckled on it eventually. Um, I mean, I think think it would be hard in the face of a script that's just obviously great <laughs> to kind of let it go you know i mean i think if, you, if you're given the, the opportunity to perform uh to to stage something like this you, you take it i think i mean to me it's just undeniable i mean that, that's another really big important aspect of being john malkovich that make, that's so unique is that this is the screenwriter as auteur which is i mean beyond rare i mean there's no there's almost no other <laughs> examples because you have, you have plenty maybe you have, you have plenty of writer directors who might have a distinctive voice but for you to watch a film and then your immediately thought is to credit the writer i mean that when does that ever happen <laughs> it never happens but right then you know seeing bon, john being john malkovich you knew that that was the person that was the driving force that the writer was and that's unheard of and it was proper because we would you know his name would come up later he would write adaptation and then he would write eternal sunshine and the spotless mind and he would go on to direct some good films too and you know so it was right to credit him but it was it was rare you know and it was rare to see you know a filmmaker like spike jones who had been known for extremely flashy and clever music videos apply a style here that was kind of modest and was sort of servicing the script in a complimentary way and not a way that where you felt like the director was at war with it or trying to overly assert himself in any way. Yeah, Jones has done a lot of interviews where he's talked about the style of this film and how he didn't do a lot of elaborate setups. He spent his time on rehearsal with the actors because he thought that would be more important than uh, getting coverage and uh, doing a lot of flashy cuts and having a lot of options. So a lot of the shot setups in this film are just pretty ordinary. I feel like the big thing that sort of marks this visually as a Spike Jones film is all of the imagery around the tunnel, the wet, dark, weird, muddy tunnel. <laughs> with a, yucky. <laughs> with a searing light at the end. There's just, and and like all of the weird zooms as people get st- sucked through it and then the, the door slams, like all of that has that kind of Michelle Gondry, like puppety sort of feeling that some of uh, Spike Jones' work has. But other than that, this is, again, it's also a very egoless uh, piece of directing as well. Of course, the fact that it's also a, t- a $10 million movie may have had something to do with, uh, you know, why it's not flashier. All the stuff with that tunnel is very Charlie Kaufman esque, too, though. Uh, just rewatching it uh, and then watching the other movie we're going to talk about, they're just such claustrophobic movies you know the Mm. idea of the seven and a half floor is a great gag but it just creates this environment where everyone in the movie is the walls are closing in on them and they're constantly hunched over and they're squatting and leaning and and they're just uncomfortable and it makes you kind of uncomfortable watching it it's funny 
it's like a, a great gag, like when they're in the break room and the break room is like teeny tiny, but it's also very confining and, and restrictive. And then you go in that tiny world, there's a tinier door. And inside the tiny door is a tiny hole that you get smaller and smaller as you get deeper and deeper into it. And it's just like so confining and like movie was kind of stressing me out watching it, like in a way that I didn't really expect it to and didn't remember. And I think it's very effective in that way. I mean, Charlie Kaufman movies as a whole, I think, are are just very often about anxiety, like they're channeling and expressing anxiety. And we've talked a lot about Malkovich. We haven't talked about the other characters or actors here, and we really ought to, because they're all experiencing huge anxieties, more or less based in their desires. Yeah, you know, Craig wants to be a famous puppeteer and is having to settle for a, a dreary day job. Lottie, like, clearly is devoted to the animals she takes care of. Uh, and then she she wants Maxine, and Maxine only wants her under extremely specific circumstances. Maxine is the only person who doesn't seem to experience anxiety, and she's mm-hmm. the piece's villain to a degree that it has one. Everybody in this film wants something that they can't have and can't get to, except for her. And then by the end of the movie, she comes around to maybe not being so much of a villain by the fact that she also suffers anxiety and and need and and fear and pain. Like the point where all of this stuff is piled on her as well is the point where she becomes human for us. What am I? I'm hearing a noise. It's my cat incessantly meowing downstairs. Uh, okay. Um, if you hear if you hear children screams, those are mine. But I think they're quiet right now. Well, we'll we'll we'll, we'll find our way through. Yeah. I mean, to, well, first of all, to follow through on the on the look of the film, uh, which relates so much to the, the characters, everyone who is not Maxine here is uh, or Malkovich. I mean, basically Craig and, Craig and Lottie are are you know got terrible greasy hair and or frizzy hair and and Lottie's case um you know you have the the sets of the seven and a half floor but also the this garden apartment that is just you know you desperately want to get out of that lightless place which which seems to be you know killing their skin i mean their skin seems to be patchy and uh and, and uh blotchy and terrible um there's also uh, the it, animal cage that uh, Lottie gets stuck in towards the uh, end of the film. Yeah. Another confining space. Totally. And I mean, all that and all that plays into these characters who, of course, they want to get out of that space and they long for transcendence because they're in this place where they're confined in different ways, where they're confined by a dream that they can achieve in Craig's case and, and desires they can't fulfill which is you know, which Maxine kind of evokes for Craig and then and then Lottie you know really gets a chance to discover herself going through that portal is such a incredible transformative or just trans <laughs> experience for her where she kind of is able to understand who she is for the first time and and there's something exciting about that and something kind of kinky that kind of comes in as well when she would the way she ends up sort of timing that out with Maxine it's just it's an interesting film because it is still full of possibility I mean it's hopeful in a way that a lot of Kaufman's work isn't a lot of the time I mean you sense that it does leave open the possibility for transformation for being able to transcend yourself and be something better feel better so for pretty much everybody in this film, the transcendence uh, comes in part from falling into Malkovich's head and literally being somebody else. But 
more than that, it comes from the emotional connections. It comes from everybody at least feeling that they've fallen in love with one or more of the other characters. The emotions in this film are so rushed. And that was one of the things that struck me this time around. Like, the way people just kind of look at each other and uh, fall into this mentality of like, I have to have you, you're my world. Like, is the abruptness of that a flaw in the story? Is it meant as kind of a comedic element? Is it just meant to be efficient? Like, what did you make of all that this time around? The quickness of it, I definitely noticed as well watching it again. It was something, I don't know if it is a flaw or a design, but it is there. It, it does It does happen very quickly. Yeah, after... Uh, a few seconds of talking to Maxine, Craig is, you know, ready to leave his life forever. And then the moments of transformation for Lottie seem to happen pretty quickly, too. Maybe it's just all down to Catherine Keener's incredible appeal. Perhaps that's mm-hmm. all it takes for anyone to fall in love is for it to be Catherine Keener at the on the receiving end of that love. She's I mean, she is pretty magnetic in this movie. I I, I can see that. But yeah, it does It does happen pretty quickly. To me, I guess it all kind of ties back together with what you were saying earlier about the characters and the the element of puppetry that we've mentioned a little bit. But just, you know, on the one hand, it has that kind of Kaufman-esque absurdity where not only does Malkovich become like a world-famous puppeteer, it seems like there just are world-famous puppeteers in this universe. Mm-hmm. There's that guy in the beginning of the movie, Derek Mantini, who's uh, <laughs> puppeteering this giant, uh, is it Emily Dickinson puppet in the beginning of the film? Yeah. So, he's, like the, he's like the David Copperfield, the tacky sort of David Copperfield, like... Right. You know... Chris Angel, puppet freak. Mm-hmm. Right. So they, there is this kind of goof or joke to the whole element of it where puppetry is like this magical thing. But on the other hand, in the movie, you see why a guy like Craig would be so drawn to it. Yes, the movie is not very flashy, but... Spike Jones, like the way he places the camera when he's shooting the puppetry stuff is so smart. And like the close-ups on the puppets themselves are really beautiful. But then he you go to these very low angles where you see Craig looking down on his puppets as he's working on them. And you get this sort of sense of the power and the godlike nature of creating these puppets and bringing them to life and controlling them and manipulating them and getting to voice them and make them do whatever he wants within this world where he has no power, where he, his life is this, you know, this shambles of garden apartments. And, uh, he, you know, he lives with this menagerie of animals where his wife seems much more interested in them than in him. And he's, you know, and the only job he can get is as a filing clerk. Like you understand what it is about the puppetry that is so appealing to him. And then I guess why, again, why Maxine is so appealing. I don't know. That just speaks to sort of the desperation for anything to kind of be good in his life. It all kind of does fit together in this way that speaks to the, just how well constructed the screenplay is. Is there a single movie in the history of cinema where puppetry is not, when it appears, being used as some sort of metaphor for control or freedom, like dominance, or creating your own world and, and living in it, some aspect of that? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's kind of hard to resist those. You know, If you're going to have puppetry in a drama, it's kind of hard to, to steer away from those. You know, they're just inherent in the craft, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there may be shows that use puppets. I, I Team America, World Police, maybe oh, yeah. is not inherently a movie about 
control and, and and dominance but movies where puppetry is diegetic i yeah i don't know I, I think it's also worth thinking about what the film has to say about art too i mean like it's amazing to me that the puppeteer w- who's doing <laughs> bell of amherst with the <laughs> lar- giant emily dickinson puppet is the sellout <laughs> <laughs> this is scenario <laughs> whereas craig is the is the true artist but you know th- that is what that is but i think there's something to that coffin here is trying to express about what art can be in relation to what people force it to be and need it to be you know i mean for him to be out on the street doing his artistic and somewhat sexual um scene is not what people are expect from street puppets and he gets punched in the face for it and with the and, implication that it, this is not the first time he's been punched in the face right, for it, exactly, right, he's right. still pressing onward he, right but it's it's like this is you know, of course which is that that artistic drive to move forward even if you're not liked but i think that a lot of artists of a certain sensibility feel that that sensibility does not have a, a home a natural home in in the culture in which we live and the, and so this is his way of expressing that in in this movie is through it through it through this through this puppeteer who, who really does, who, who is defying what is expected of the form, which is to entertain children. You have to feel like Charlie Kaufman could relate to that, being who he is and what he's made since, being the guy like uh, on the writing staff of the Dana Carvey show. You have to feel like he related to that <laughs> sentiment of having these weird, very personal, uh, very out there in left field emotions that you want to express and then, you know, and the Dana Carvey show now is, you know, held as this cult thing. But, you know, of course, yeah. we also remember it was it as, pretty crazy. It was pretty crazy. Though. <laughs> right. But it was that, still, that, you that know, group, an, that group of writers got away with a whole lot of crazy shit. Right. But it was still an ABC. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. primetime sitcom. And so there's, you know, there are certain limits. And even when they were being edgy, they were still talking about, you know, the president and things like that, mm-hmm. which has never been the, the sort of subject that Charlie Kaufman was all that interested in. So, yeah, I, I'm sure he could. Uh, there's a lot of him in Craig, for sure. But it's probably a lot of him in a lot of the characters though Mm -hmm. well we haven't really talked at all about uh, cusack and and diaz in this film what do you make of those performances i mean i think they're pretty good (laughs) (laughs) i mean they're fine yeah i mean they're they're good performances i don't know i mean those are two actors who it's like i mean you think about john malkovich in that role and it's like nobody else is gonna could play that role i wouldn't necessarily say that of either one of either cusack or diaz in it but they're good and and i mean for diaz it was just it was a shocking change of pace i mean this is one of the most glamorous actresses in, in hollywood throughout that entire decade right. um who is willing to go this far to kind of strip that whole image bare and i think and i think it also showcased something that she was good at which she was comedy i mean she, she was always a very buoyant funny actress and so that this showcased that quality as well maybe there wasn't a lot of people who could mix those two things together i think you needed to have a recognizable and you know, somewhat glamorous actress who would be willing to sort of de-glam and then also somebody who could handle comedy and drama. And she does both. I never really thought about it before, but just now when we're talking about, you know, looking at these actors in the movie, it might be interesting to kind of compare the Cusack character to his character in High Fidelity, which is the next year. And just these, I don't know, these, uh, there's, they have a lot in common, actually, as I'm sitting here thinking about them, you know, they're both kind of these proud outsider figures who position themselves as these bastions of artistry and truth and they have a lot of sexual issues and you know they're pining after women a lot of the time and 
Yeah, that's an interesting... John Cusack is an actor who I sort of enjoy, but I've never really thought of him uh, in these terms of like kind of linking, especially in this period, his his movies together. It seems like something that's worth further study, I would say, to like get to the Cusack persona, especially in this kind of period that he was doing um, this and High Fidelity. Something to think about more, and I, well, I guess. He had reached an age, too, where he was not Lloyd Dobler anymore. He wasn't, he wasn't right. where he started. He wasn't like this innocent... High school guy. He was he was in real life and on film. Is you know kind of a aging bachelor guy who was still kind of on the prowl a little bit and still um, unsettled and kind of skeezy in certain respects. You know, I mean, you know, and I think and I say that is all that's all to the good for what Cusack brings to these roles, both of those roles. But it was a reflection, I think, of how much um, had changed for him and his image from where he started. Matt, I want to kind of loop back to the top. When we talked about how the film plays for us today, you kind of alluded to the idea that there are things in it that don't work for you, that uh, maybe you don't want to use the word dated exactly. That's a fraught uh, word on this podcast. because Keith would, be, would jump all over dated. He hates dated. He's left my body yeah, many it's, minutes it's ago, been more than so 15 minutes. But, uh, you know, the things that, that play differently for you now than maybe they did originally, like, were you thinking of anything in particular? I think maybe it's just more me, actually. You know, uh, I've changed. Maybe the movie hasn't changed. Maybe I'm uh, more cynical and, and sad like the characters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I, I don't know, like things, you know, things that I noticed, uh, other things we haven't talked about is like, just, you know, when I saw this movie, as I we mentioned at the top, I saw this, you know, where I grew up in, in central New Jersey. And um, shortly after this, until now, I've lived in New York City. And it's not a great New York City movie. And the whole element of that kind of was driving me crazy this time was how fast they seem to be able to get from Midtown to the New Jersey, <laughs> the side of the New Jersey Turnpike. Oh, um, I know. It takes, like, because you only have, they established, they only have those 15 minutes. So unless time is flowing differently, depending on where you are, there's no way they could get to that spot on the New Jersey Turnpike in 15 minutes every single time. And as much and the as car's it, always waiting for whoever pops out. Right. So they, the implication is it only takes 10 minutes. That's right. And, it, and as much as it's a... Um, you could say a, a plot hole or whatever that almost bothers me less than the fact that the movie doesn't like ever play with that. Like there's never really like you could have made a whole sequence about getting there in time or being late or that seems almost like a missed opportunity was kind of what was driving me a little to frustration, even more than the kind of plot hole aspect of it. That's not really anything dated, but honestly that was something that I would never have noticed 20 years ago that when I was watching it this time, Every time that someone would plop out on the side of the turnpike, and I, I do sort of love how physical it is. People are like, yeah, <laughs> they really so slam hard. into the ground in a really yeah. those are really way. bruising stunts. Yeah, yeah, it looks painful. I mean, to me, I mean, as a non-New Yorker, I guess I'm just kind of willing to accept that thought. Did sort of cross my mind about how they keep being able to pick people up uh, that quickly, but I just think the visual is so striking of emerging in that specific spot, you know, with, with, I think you could see like the tollways and it's just the whole thing, you know, the fact that it's, it is what it is, that it is the Jersey, a ditch by the Jersey Turnpike in the film is so, so much about emphasizing grime, <laughs> you know, and grayness and sweat and filth. And it just seems like that's the right spot. And so if you lose a little bit, in terms of um, geography, I guess, um, you gain a lot of other things, in my opinion. 
but also just specificity. You know, they could have come out in the basement of the building. They could have come out in some random alley. The side of the New Jersey Turnpike, like outside a toll station, it's just, it's such a specific, weird element that just speaks to, you know, somebody for whom details are really important. Maybe weird and inexplicable, but important. You, you know, one other thing I want to really want to add about this movie is that I think that Spike Jones he, here and then and then later in adaptation got the the humor of Charlie Kaufman better than anybody. Else. Those are the funniest Charlie Kaufman movies, and I think that must owe something to Spike Jones and his sensibility, you know, and, and things that he adds to it. I mean, thinking of that amazing. You know, the funniest moment of the scene in the movie to me is when Malkovich gets chucked off when he goes through the portal and then he gets bounced onto the turnpike himself. And that whole sequence of him running up with another guy who's also really enthusiastic and him yelling about with such that emphatic Malkovich style to Craig about... uh, this is not a sim. That was not a simulation. And then, and, but, it's but then my, my head, my, Schwartz. It's my head, Schwartz. It's my head. So for some reason, I always, I always hear that was no simulation in the same cadence of specifically Matt doing. It's not a tumor. <laughs> but then the, but the, 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 the topper for me, I have to believe this is a Spike Jones edition. Is somebody saying? Is somebody throwing that can? <laughs> at Malkovich's head out of the car <laughs> it's just it's so perfect it's such a perfect button to that scene and I think that maybe that's the Spike Jones touch too of just kind of Kaufman as as perhaps we'll see when we talk about the new film he can get pretty deep into his own head can get very serious can his films can feel really heavy and this does not feel that way. And I think maybe that's the Spike Jones touch because Spike Jones, who you know from other films and, not, and from his music videos for like Sabotage and a lot of other wonderful things, you know, he's known for his wit and his humor. And, and I think there's a nice kind of balance between those two sensibilities. I think that's a very good point. And that also worth noting, like I, another thing about I'm, having seen this movie and not seeing it for a long time, it's like, I remember it as a comedy and it is very funny. And I did not remember how dark the end of this movie is. The end of this movie is so incredibly bleak. Like the happy ending that I thought I remembered is actually like incredibly dark. Like the idea that like, okay, like Maxine and and Lottie are together. They have their daughter, but waiting in the wings is Malkovich, who's lost forever inside his, you know, inside his own head. All these people have, you know, Dr. Lester and everyone else is, is controlling Malkovich. And they're just waiting until they can take over the daughter. And so this idea that, like, if there is, like, a happy ending here, it's only going to last, what, 44 years or whatever it is. And then there's another terrible uh, loss of uh, identity that's coming. It's like, that's, again, maybe this is more about me watching this movie and paying more attention than I did when I was 19 or 18 years old, wherever it was. But it's just like, man, that ending, it's, it's heavy. To your to your point yeah. about uh, uh, Charlie Kaufman can get it's a kind bit of beautiful heavy. though. I mean, like the, the it's such a deft note to end the film on. I think just visually and and it, I mean, there's something I, I don't feel you don't I never I, don't, I hear you talking about the darkness and of it, but the way it actually feels to watch it is much more like bittersweet. I think it's also I mean to me even back then it felt empowering in a weird sort of way. So many movies focus on men behaving badly. And this is a movie about a man whose desires take over his life and his uh, entitlement deeply harms his 
pretty, pretty innocent, uh, almost childish wife. And he just, he selfishly pursues his own goals at, at the point of like literally dismissing other people's humanity, stealing their bodies, stealing their identities. And at the end, he's left in this impotent space where like nothing, none of his desires matter anymore. None of his desires can be fulfilled. Like he abused his power and privilege and he got locked up for it. And that's something that we're seeing over and over and over again. Doesn't often happen in the real world. It feels like a happy fantasy to me, at least. I think you're right about the further implications if you think about it being very dark for the future. But Mm -hmm. you also have to keep in mind that Maxine and Lottie are both, uh, you know, shepherding this child forward and they know about the portal. Uh, They know about the plan. They have the ability to to defend their kid. In the sequel, still being John Malkovich, they'll destroy (laughs) the portal to protect their daughter. Buy the building, tear it down. Who knows? I like that. Yes. Now I'm not very film. But now it's a happy ending. I think we need another, at least another 10 years on that, since it's uh, about 40-ish years, at least, depending on how old that little girl is. But boy, given the sequel, remake, reboot, nostalgia bid uh, place that we've gotten to films these days, I feel like there would be a market for still being John Malkovich. That or it sounds like a joke in a Charlie Kaufman movie, for sure. (laughs) Well, speaking of jokes in uh, Charlie Kaufman movies, we're going to move on to feedback, but we'll be back in part two to talk about how the humor of this film plays against the relative lack of humor in the films Kaufman directed and particularly in his new one. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this. it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Every week we give you our phone number and every week we picture our virtual phone like something out of a cartoon. It's covered with cobwebs. It's got a skeleton sitting in front of it with its head in its hand. It's just, it's waiting for a call that'll never come, but no more. This week we're featuring a couple of different voicemails we got recently. First, in response to our pairing of Lord of the Flies and Boy's State, William has a book recommendation. Greetings, Next Picture Show. This is William Shun calling from New York City. I really enjoyed your discussion about Lord of the Flies in uh, the latest episode. You had mentioned uh, wondering what would happen if uh, a bunch of girls had been dropped onto the island. And I wanted to point out, as no doubt other listeners will also, that that novel actually exists. It's called Beauty Queens, uh, written by Libba Bray. And uh, it's extraordinarily funny. Uh, Spoiler alert, it goes much differently than Lord of the Flies. You should check it out, Uh, but particularly in the audiobook edition, which uh, is even funnier because the author herself reads it, and it's just fantastic. Uh, Enjoy the show. Uh, Read Beauty Queens, and I look forward to much more Next Picture Show. Thanks. Well, thanks to William for that book recommendation. None of us have heard of it. None of us have read it. But I I have to say, I immediately requested it from the library. It's sitting there waiting for me if I ever break quarantine enough to stick my head outside the door (laughs) again. I'm actively looking forward to reading that. 
we don't get many book recommendations here on the podcast. And that's kind of exciting in and of itself. Like we, we definitely like to hear about stories we don't know about that are riffs on the kind of themes that we're talking about. But as I was thinking about this book and Lord of Flies and just stories about kids making their own societies in general, I started thinking about like all of the other books and, and films that end up going to kind of that same place of kids kind of needing to make a world for themselves. Mm-hmm. Scott, you're a big fan of uh, Corita's Nobody Knows, too, I believe. Yeah, that's that's maybe my favorite of his films. Certainly way, way, way up there. Um, so Nobody Knows is about a 12-year-old uh, who is, he's the oldest of the children who, who are sort of left behind, and they have to fend for themselves. And this is something that Corita has dealt with this you know, before in other, in other movies, um, including like a, a film like Shoplifters, which obviously is about a family, but, but has poverty as the theme and, and just the, the, the ingenuity, but also the, the desperation of these kids um, who are kids and who, who, who are resilient as kids can be, but uh, also unable to take care of themselves and, and having to really scrape to stay alive. And um, uh, that's, that's a great one. There's also a, a, a film called The Maze Runner, Tasha. Have you heard of The Maze Runner? And also the one, the Welcome to the Scorch Maze Runner movie. Um, it's Jeremy called Rich. The Scorch Trial, Scott. Please respect <laughs> the cinematic universe of The Maze Runner. Thank you. <laughs> I only call it like, like welcome. I only think I think of it as welcome to the scorch, just based on uh, you know Carcetti's line there. Uh, uh, <laughs> welcome to the scorch, but that's not really worth seeing. But there's there's not a lot of, you know. Of course, we we always brainstorm around certain recent titles. I mean, and Boy State was something we knew we wanted to do. I kind of locked into Lord of the Flies pretty early, but but now you're really regretting not getting to the Maze Runner while you had the chance, <laughs> right? The Maze Runner, but there's not a lot of films about like children building society is not not a common thing. But there's a lot of examples of kids who are abandoned, uh, you know, or or not well looked after and have to kind of figure things out. And there's a whole rich tradition of that. Los Olvidados, the uh, Louis Benoit film about you know mexican orphans is really powerful um uh, the florida uh, project immediately came to mind for me oh yeah god the florida project is fantastic you know there's you know small change uh the the Truffaut film is a very child oriented though, though i think there's a little more adult supervision in that more recently ben zeitlin's wendy uh, which is a Peter Pan riff, uh, which just kind of opens up the whole world of like Peter Pan takeoffs and, and redos and Peter Pan inspired works, like anything involving the Lost Boys in any way, up to and including the movie The Lost Boys. Although that's really more about uh, like lonely vampires building a society than lonely children building a society. I guess if we get into kids and gummo and those sorts of movies are all about children who are sort of left to their own. Uh, devices. I mean, kids, they're a little bit older, I guess, but um, they get in a lot of trouble when they're not being watched. Yeah. One of the things that just immediately jumped to my mind with this recommendation was a book series I'd just about forgotten about, uh, Michael Grant's Gone series, which is sort of a Stephen King under the dome kind of uh, series where, where suddenly a bunch of kids are trapped in their town and all of the adults are gone. And it does end up being kind of a Lord of the Flies. It's a fantasy take on Lord of the Flies. And it stretches out over the course of like six books with things getting worse and worse inside the the bubble in just a very Stephen King kind of way. It does kind of fit in like a space between, like perfectly between Under the Dome, Hunger Games, and Lord of the Flies. 
I appreciated that series a lot. I, I followed them pretty closely as they came out. Books, it's, it's, it's good that we can have, you know, some literature for people to pick up <laughs> on our film podcast. Blech. Books? <laughs> <laughs> Matt, does anything speak to you just like in this theme as far as the, the tradition of kids on their own movies? Like, especially as the father of a couple small children, I like one of the things I constantly hear from uh, my film critic buds that are parents is that becoming a parent makes you see a lot of these child endangerment stories very differently. Mm, that's yeah, that's interesting. I haven't can't think of any like that that I've watched recently, but that does definitely happen. It is fun in general to watch movies through my daughter's eyes. My older daughter especially likes movies a lot and has an incredible attention span. And we haven't really watched anything well, let me rephrase that. We have. There the thing that would apply here is the new adventures of Pippi Longstocking, which is one of my oh, sure. my my wife's one of her favorite movies as a kid, and we introduced it to our daughters. Very much a rite of passage, apparently, because my uh-huh. my my wife loves that movie, and they really enjoyed it. And Pippi and her friends in that movie are kind of off on on their own for a lot of it. I mean, there are adults, but the whole shtick is if you don't know the character or the movie is like. Uh, her dad is kind of lost at sea, and so she's kind of hanging out all on her own, and she gets to have all kinds of wild fun without uh, without the parents. They get to clean the house and throw ice cream, and oh, it's a wild time. It's uh, it's quite an entertainment. I was very into the Pippi Longstocking books as a little girl, because, I mean, there is sort of a fantasy in that. In the same way there is in Lord of the Flies, I think, uh, the fantasy of being free of adult control and adult supervision. Yeah, And Pippi Longstocking is sort of an interesting interesting place between capable enough to look after herself and enough of a child to want to you know do things like throwing ice cream right but yeah and then she also does things like she spins so fast she can become like the propeller of a helicopter or a gyro plane or something it's pretty wild pippi's (laughs) kind of awesome yeah so the that's 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 a good one that kind of fits into this world yeah bring back pippi longstocking you hollywood cowards it's kind of surprising (laughs) that they haven't given everything else they've made she seems primed for a reboot That's fair enough. Uh, So here's another audio recording letter from Rebecca, who says that when we were debating whether the song along exactly fits into Eurovision Song Contest, it got a little, little Mm -hmm. debatey. And she says that we're all right. So let's hear what she has to say. Okay. Hello, Rebecca Rogers here. Very long time listener. First time commenter. When I saw The Mighty Wind was being paired with Eurovision, I was confused. Why would you guys steer me towards a Will Ferrell movie? But I loved A Mighty Wind. My best friend pointed me towards that soundtrack, and she and I can probably sing any song on that album. I agree with Genevieve. The song-along mashup was amazing. I teared up when they started singing Waterloo. But I also agree with Tasha. It didn't really seem to fit into the story that the movie was telling until the movie was over. And then I realized that it did. It made perfect sense inside the story. We just didn't believe it at the time. I was waiting for Farrell to do something silly or embarrassing, but the truth is he fits right in. The only person who stands out like a Russian thumb is Alexander, but even his bizarre operatic over-the-top voice fits. It's Eurovision. In the middle of the movie, the song along seems out of place. Why are the good guys just singing and harmonizing along with the bad guys? It's not until the end of the movie that you realize there are no bad guys. 
in any other movie, Mita and Alexander would be seducing Lars in secret because they're working together to take down the competition. But when it's all over, it turns out they're just two friends at a party having a good time. Mita goes to Farrell's hotel room because she wants to get laid. Alexander's hidden agenda turns out to be he doesn't want to have sex. There are no bad guys at this concert. There's no Cobra Kai to take out Ralph Macchio's knee so he can only use the crane technique. There's no evil storm chasers zooming through Oklahoma in a matching black vehicle because they're not in it for the weather. They're in it for the money. Eurovision is just artists. The song along makes sense in the middle of the movie because they really are just one big happy family. They're all musicians. They're welcoming Lars and Secret because those are musicians too. They haven't had any bad musicians here, not by Eurovision standards. They don't have a chance to win because they're nobodies from nowhere land and they have no major fan base, but they can sing. They are songwriters. Yaya Ding Dong is so popular in their hometown, they're not allowed to leave the building without performing it repeatedly. And Double Trouble is arguably a better song than um, Lion of Love. Thanks. That's interesting that Rebecca, the caller, could square those position those <laughs> positions of ours, which were opposed to each other. So that, so kudos to her for that. I mean, my feeling though is that it's not sort of retroactively right in the sense that all these these characters that we assume to be villains are not, and that actually all of them are artists who enjoy being each other's company and enjoy singing together. It's that I think that the movie allows itself to have a moment like that, a moment out of, out of time that kind of pays tribute to the whole spirit of the of the song contest in a pretty joyous way. So I'm fine with the unreality of that moment because I think it's so, such a pleasure, you know, in and of itself as a sort of a standalone sequence. Matt, what's your stance on Eurovision Song Contest and the song along sequence in particular? I felt like the caller made some good points, especially in terms of, you know, that feeling of that not being any villains in the movie necessarily and and one of the reasons i enjoyed it was it was it was a sweet film it had a it had a good heart you know that eurovision logo has a big heart in the middle of it and i felt like this movie had a heart as well and also i would like to hear ya ya ding dong again can we play it right now is it song possible? of the summer no okay I feel, I, f- I feel like the song of the summer is uh the actor screaming play ya ya ding dong <laughs> Way more so than the song itself. I just hope he's remembered, you know, these movies, especially on streaming, they're forgotten in the fall when the big movies come out. I hope he's recognized uh, for Best Supporting Actor, as he should be, for <laughs> guy who screams, ya, ya, ding, dong, play ya, ya, ding, dong. He really needs to be honored for his contribution to cinema this year. Yeah, culture, well, he has been sure. getting he's been doing a ton of press and his uh, interviews have been deeply entertaining. And Netflix did a whole video interview that was supposedly just going to be him reading people's Ya Ya Ding Dong tweets, uh, but that instead ended up being him opining on the phenomenon and telling the story of how that role was built around him screaming too loud in a crowd scene. <laughs> maybe that could and, be uh, maybe that could be the next Charlie Kaufman thing. Being Ya Ya Ding Dong guy. I would I would watch that movie. Yeah. I want it to just be being Ya Ya Ding Dong. Uh, and and we can take the rest as it it's it rolls off the tongue better, but you know, we all want to see it. The problem is that, you know, we'd miss the entire movie because we'd just be yelling play Ya Ya Ding Dong at the screen because it's so fun to say. Well, we always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. If you want us to hear your voice, leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730. And if you don't, email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. 
that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll bring in Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things and consider his longtime obsession with insecure, confused men rewriting the world in their own image. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, Malkovich Malkovich? Malkovich Malkovich Malkovich. Malkovich!